Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Hi, Michelle Martin. Good morning. This is Money and Me. Disinflation seems to be the word of the day. The situation where inflation rates seem to be slowing. So how could it dictate the Fed's moves moving ahead? Let's first look at what happened overnight. Fed Chair Jerome Powell indicating a couple more interest rate increases before... apparently putting the Fed's aggressive tightening campaign on hold. Um, Powell and his colleagues lifted the Fed's target for its benchmark rate by a quarter percentage point to a range of 4.5% to 4.75%. So a smaller move, followed by a half-point increase in December, if you think about it, and, I mean, in context of the four jumbo-sized 75 basis point hikes before that, so relatively dovish, and that cheered markets. The S&P 500 closed more than 1% higher, after the news and two-year yields fell sharply. We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to start with the Fed's moves right now as I welcome back to the show Arun Pai from the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures. Good morning, Arun. How are you? Good morning, Michelle. I'm good. How are you? Doing well. So when you look at what has occurred overnight. What's changed? Is the Fed's interest rate decision still apparently on track or is it still trying to weave a line between the economy and recession? Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, it was all pretty much as expected, right? I mean, I think after going back maybe close to a year on your show, Mm. there were all these, like we were discussing about how uh, having such a low interest rates environments, pumping in so much capital, it's going to cause inflation at a certain point. And even when inflation did rear its ugly head, it didn't seem that the Fed was uh, taking on any action at that point of time. But I think what they've done over the course of uh, 2022 uh, and through this meeting uh, last night, it seems like they've really figured out how to dampen expectations while at the same time not bringing the economy to a crashing halt, right? Which was the big fear of the markets, if you think back to Q3, Q4 of last year. So putting all of that together, uh, you know, the whole soft landing hope, like the whole Goldilocks scenario, seems Mm -hmm. to be panning out quite well. Markets are quite happy with this, obviously. While interest rate, while, uh, you know, earnings obviously have slowed down to some extent, it's nowhere nearly as bad as what what we were all thinking literally just three or four months back. Inflation, the headline numbers of 8, 10 plus percent, now down to 6.5 percent on the way lower. And it's great to see that the Fed is not uh, saying, you know, like uh, patting itself on its back and saying the job is done. It's trying to ensure to the market, getting the message across that, look, we are still over here. We still are going to increase interest rates. can easily expect rates to be over 5 percent, just about 5 percent by the end of 2023 with two more interest rate hikes of 25 bits. And uh, then let's give it some time, let extraction of capital from the economy, let's see what kind of a slowdown it brings overall, especially in terms of inflation. So putting all of that together, uh, I think they've sliced that needle absolutely perfectly between us being in a very, very precarious situation a year, year and a half ago, with expectations Mm -hmm. of extremely high inflation, and say like three, four months ago, where there was a lot more fear of a complete crash in the economy. So from all of those perspectives, 
it's a, it's a perfect scenario from the Fed and how the markets played out. The problem, though, comes on the investing side, right? Mm. Because you've got valuations. Like this big question mark about, okay, markets are looking better. The economy is looking decent. It's not going to be all a doomsday scenario. But at the same time, on the valuation side, things seem to be relatively fairly priced, I would say. Maybe slightly more optimistic in nature. Uh, so slightly elevated price-to-earnings ratios and other of such financial metrics. But overall, I would say it's quite fairly priced. So it's not a screaming buy, nor a screaming sell from an overall perspective. And that's where I see kind of like the market dynamics and landscape right now. Uh, dovish moves, definitely cheering markets. The S&P 500 closed up more than 1% after Fed talk overnight and two-year yields fell sharply. All right, let's take a look over at India and the Adani loan route. So the latest, the flagship Adani Enterprises Limited, seeing its shares plummeting in afternoon trading, crashing uh, to the tune of $92 billion. And the issue here is collateral worries. You know, we're thinking China Evergrande, for example. This all triggered by short seller Hindenburg Research and their allegations of fraud targeting Gautam Adani and Adani Enterprises. And uh, the risk here, Arun, is more financial institutions start to then look at their exposure to this indebted conglomerate and then we see a knock-on effect. How likely and how real are the contagion effect fears? It's like you have a crystal ball, Michelle. Uh, Credit Suisse Private Bank literally just a Mm. couple of hours ago announced that they're not going to be lending any money against Adani Bond. So if you think about how all these private banks and how leverage works, as an investor, if you're owning a Donny bond, you can take that, shoot that across to your Credit Swiss private banker or any other private banker, and the private bank will give you leverage against it, right? So that you have a certain fixed income bond, you get extra capital, you can take further leverage to buy other instruments. This number was at about 75% of face value is what they were providing literally just a couple of days ago. Now, post the Hindenburg report, Credit Suisse is now basically assigned a zero lending value, which means that as an investor uh, who's taken leverage utilizing these bonds as collateral, you need to start coughing up extra collateral. The exact same thing to a much larger extent has been with the Adani family, where they have had to cough up or provide as collateral more shares of what they own because of all these covenants and all these restrictions now that banks are placing against the loans that they've provided. And if they don't, their securities will be liquidated, right? That is correct. So as an individual, our securities will be liquidated. As Adani, then obviously that has a much bigger spiral. It's kind of similar to what was going on with Elon Musk and Tesla. But luckily, the share price rallied so much that, you know, he he could kind of get out of it. Over here, it's like the Evergrande situation, like you were mentioning, where typically founders or founding families of these large conglomerates they take on extra debt onto the company while providing their shares as collateral. And that's what banks lend against, right? So when times are going well, it's fantastic, right? Because you get a low cost of capital. But when times start going badly and the share price starts catering, then you can have forced liquidation. So I've glanced through the report. Personally, Mm. uh, I don't invest in single name Indian stocks, similar to China. It's just yeah. very difficult for an outsider, right? You, there are so many nuances that are taking place in these two economies. 
regulatory things are a bit of a question mark, obviously, uh, governance issues, etc. From Hindenburg's perspective, timing was absolutely spot on, right? They issued this right before this capital raise announcement of Adani, which was close to about $2.5 billion, was going to be raised in the equity markets through a secondary placement. As of, like, I think about six, seven hours ago, even though the $2.5 billion was raised, as in investors were willing to put fresh capital of that much amount of money into uh, the company, because the share price cratered so much yesterday, it went below the trading range or the price range of what was expected. So Adani actually issued a note saying that he's going to give back the $2.5 billion because he has that much confidence in his underlying assets and his underlying company's ability to generate cash. Sign of positivity from that perspective, but having been at Lehman Brothers where, you know, my previous CEO, Dick Fultz, said the exact same thing the day before going bankrupt, it's always a question mark, right? Like these things you never know until it, it post facto, which is why in, in stocks like this, it's probably best for retail investors at least to stay far away rather than think that they can try and time these kind of vicious right. market moves. Yeah, well, speaking of your time at Lehman Brothers, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, it's a huge report, the Hindenburg report that was released January 24th, and it details wide-ranging allegations. I mean, point by point, there there are too many to go through here. A hundred-page report basically accusing the Indian conglomerate of using a web of companies in, in tax havens to inflate their revenue and stock prices. So 38 Mauritius shell entities, uh, some of this network used for earnings manipulation. The fact that the Adani Group has been the focus of four major government investigations relating to allegations of fraud. Bill Ackman has likened uh, the Adani response to what he saw when he shorted Herbalife. Uh, Adani, of course, has come back with something like a 400-page report defending itself, uh, saying that the Hindenburg report is meritless. But in the broad picture of things, when you think back to Lehman, when you think back to even uh, Madoff, uh, Hindenburg calls this the the biggest con in corporate history. How does it measure up? Yeah, I mean, so Lehman was suffering through its own differentiated issues, right? Where it could be said that it's not a fraud, but it was just massive over leverage on its balance mm. sheet. For $1 of equity, it had $30 of debt on top. Those kinds of extremely highly over-leveraged positions don't exist anymore, given the clampdown of the financial sector, right, in terms of regulation. So I would, in a way, there might be some personal bias over here, but I wouldn't <laughs> say Lehman was a f- outright fraud. Madoff was a very clear Ponzi scheme, right, where Money that was coming in was being used to settle previous people's payments uh, or providing them returns. And Ponzi schemes work until they don't. Uh, there was a huge market crash in 2008, obviously post Lehman crisis. And that's when this entire thing unraveled. And just for your listeners, by the way, there's a really good yeah. documentary on Madoff on Netflix. I've watched it. I love it. Yeah, it was, it was really good, wasn't it? <laughs> Great dramatization. And I've watched a lot about the Madoff story, but I think I think it was fantastic entertainment. It, it was done really well. It had a really, I mean, obviously it was dramatized to some extent because it's Netflix at the end of the day and you need to attract the mass audience. But it did bring, get the message across, I thought, in a very succinct manner. It's so 
But so yeah, so that was you know overall. Like, I actually, can I just share with you fun. one observation? I was surprised See? that Madoff himself used the word Ponzi <laughs> when he was arrested. <laughs> That's right. But, but I, I think he himself was so shocked that he's been doing this for so many years, <laughs> and yet nobody found out about it. Right? <laughs> yeah, his, I, his I guess in my brain. I th- I thought that he had rationalized it to himself, but the fact that he said it's a Ponzi and he tells his his sons this, I think, oh, makes it so much worse. You knew you were running a Ponzi scheme, okay? But that's made off. <laughs> I wish I could have Adani on. I'll be working on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so amazing story. Obviously, highly recommend your listeners to watch it. Uh, very entertaining and and yet informative stuff. But again, right, like. Ponzi scheme, the guy himself admitted it, outright fraud. In the case of uh, Adani or any large corporate in India, Mm. given the capital controls, a lot of companies set up offshore entities and vehicles for various financing needs, right? And that could be all legally done with the blessing of the government. And Adani is very, very close to Modi. uh, And there are all these rumors about that also where the Indian government might step in You've seen Adani play the whole Indian sovereign card also to try to, you know, drum up nationalism, played up as well. Yeah, naturally, it's going to happen, right? I mean, uh, he's going to play that card. I have not been able to do a forensic analysis of the entire routing of money from one place to the other. Is there any actual fraud, or is it just another another Indian conglomerate setting up an offshore entity? So that is a question mark. You know, obviously, if it comes down to inflating revenues or forging interest rates just for the sake of ensuring that Wall Street or the Lal Street, the equivalent of Wall Street in India, it, expectations are met, obviously, that's going to be a criminal offense, right? So it, it really depends on how this thing pans out. I know Bill Ackman came out with the whole uh, tweet about Herbalife. Herbalife is still publicly traded. It's still The share price is still doing quite well. That was a big mm. question mark about Ponzi schemes also. So, you know, I, I think there's just so much uncertainty at this point. Uh, don't take me wrong. I think Hindenburg is a fantastic research house. They do their due diligence and work before publishing anything. The timing of the output of this report right before the uh, share sale, maybe a little bit of not financial manipulation, I would say, but the timing is quite accurate to short because that just leads to even more uh, highly volatile nature of the stock. Uh, so they've mapped, they panned that out absolutely perfectly, uh, monetized it quite to a very large extent already. But I think the bottom line is, until enough actual legal due diligence and actual audit is done or not, I think it's 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 far too uncertain to know. And hence, from that perspective, uh, at least I personally am staying out of this. Good advice for our listeners, Arun. Let's talk about Bitcoin. Is it less volatile than S&P 500, Tesla and NASDAQ? It apparently has been outperforming all those components uh, in the first month of this year. I woke up and my crypto group chat was just blowing up. People talking about Bitcoin breaking out. What's happening with Bitcoin? When will this thing die, Michelle? When will it die? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But no, it, it's been a remarkable revival this month. Uh, or, you know, uh, in the month of January. I think Bitcoin yeah. is up like 35 40% or something, over $30,000. Uh, not that I take a look at it on a daily, weekly, or even monthly <laughs> basis for that matter. But look. 43% you know, in January. 43% Just in January. There you go. Yeah. But I think there are two big issues still, for me at least, right? First and foremost, uh, let's short term and long term. 
from a short-term perspective, I don't still believe that the underlying crazy cross-leverage between various entities that brought down FTX, that brought down a number of other exchanges, has still dissipated anywhere, right? There's still a, a lot of these exchanges or entities that have over that have a lot of credit lines set up with other entities without any knowledge of whether this money exists or not whether it was all a fraud whether it was all a ponzi scheme so i think from a short-term perspective sure you'll always have these you know little spikes up when there's been such a big market correction but i think that's still a very big question mark right until proper regulation comes in this space i still feel it's a lot of the wild wild west that's on the shorter term end of things. On the longer term end of things, mm-hmm. I think the fundamental problem still is this underlying quote unquote world changing technology now has been in mainstream for over five, six years, and yet there's really not been a true use case. Right? So so you've got a bunch of people who are sitting and punting around various cryptocurrencies on various exchanges, hoping to make money, but unless true value has been created in the underlying economy or the world, this is going to become a zero-sum game, right? So, so for example, why do uh, people say, oh, keep buying stocks, right? Because stocks is nothing but the underlying business. If underlying businesses keep doing well in the world uh, and a certain growth rate of its earnings, revenue, yada, 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 that'll uh, flow down to its share price, presumably, and that's how investors can make money. In the case of cryptocurrencies, sure, you can have one or two, right, which is equivalent to, say, digital gold. Probably not even two, probably just one, right? So hence there's some thesis, I guess, against people investing in Bitcoin specifically because that has become the OG of cryptocurrencies. So fair enough. That's a digital gold. I get it. But for everything else, right, all your other protocol coins, your other expletive coins, whatever you want to call them, uh, there's still a big question mark against if there is no true utilization, what exactly are we trading? And for how long can the zero-sum game last? And hence, from that perspective, I'm quite apprehensive about this state until and unless we can truly see use cases. And being in the venture capital space, you know, we meet a lot of startups across industries, uh, mm. including cryptocurrencies, and we personally have not really we've not really seen something that's truly been disruptive uh, using that technology at the fringes. Yes, but truly disrupting it the way the internet has and the way how we live our lives. No, and hence does that equate to the hundreds of billions of dollars that have gone into the space? Dare I say no? And that's why I'm a bit skeptical about this space still. That's an excellent answer to the question: Does does Bitcoin have what it takes? to continue this rally, right? Are there, are there, what do we have to base this on? I don't know what Kathy Woods is basing her prediction on. She's holding firm to Bitcoin will reach a million dollars, but she's got money in the game. So <laughs> I guess it explains <laughs> well, that. you know, uh, it's great to see Kathy Woods come out of the woodwork, excuse the pun, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the markets are rallying a little bit and all of that, especially the tech stocks. No, I, I, look, again, right, uh, could it be a million dollars? Could it be $10 million? Could it be $5,000? Who knows? Uh, In seven years. But, mm-hmm. but, but the, the premise is, at least I can intellectually understand the concept where people are equating it to digital gold and they believe that this can 
house enough value. And if enough people think about about that, similar-ish to a Ponzi scheme, but not exactly, because people want a place to park their assets in a safe, secure manner, then, you know, who knows? It could be Bitcoin. And, and, and that's completely understandable where I personally don't invest in gold, but I can understand why people would if, they, if, if enough people believe it to be a store of value, a safe store of value, then sure, it gains that kind of persona and pedigree in the financial market. But everything else, it needs true utilization. It needs truly to Absolutely. disrupt our economy. Absolutely. 1,000%. I have to say that I agree with you on this 1,000%. Even though there are questions out there, will it be a multi-trillion dollar market? Will Bitcoin become this? I will just have to put that to chat GPT to see, <laughs> ultimately. <laughs> okay, let's talk about earnings. Have you tried it out? <laughs> I have. Amazing, huh? Absolutely incredible. I can't wait until they scale up and have subscriptions for us in the finance industry. Although, you know, Arun, somebody did ask it to predict tomorrow's stock market and ChatGPT declined and said there wasn't enough info. Yeah, because the amount of data that's been fed into it has only been till the end of the year. And they actually just came out with a subscription plan, by the way. $20 a month for people in the US. But yeah, I'll be shelling out $20 today for sure. (laughs) Speaking about shelling out, it, you know, it's so painful earning season for us in journalism because there's so much to get through. But let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing when it comes to Pfizer's earnings in particular. Earnings down, a disappointing outlook. Some say, well, logically, the COVID business has been dropping off. So when you look at Pfizer's forecasts and how it's fallen in terms, fallen short of analyst expectations, what do you see? Yeah, a lot of companies had very divergent uh, fortune through COVID, right? A whole bunch of like travel companies basically went under, but a whole bunch of health tech, healthcare related businesses, pharma companies did fantastically well through COVID. Now that we are hopefully touch wood <laughs> at the tail end of this whole COVID pandemic, it does seem like the air is coming out of the balloon for a lot of these pharma companies. And that's as per expected, right? So I don't think that there's anything particularly earth-shattering over there. Pfizer, like many of the tech companies, just needs to figure out to control its costs while ensuring that its continuous R&D spend on coming out with the next new drug can hopefully alleviate the share price correction. Uh, and the pipeline of, uh, you know, the, the drug pipeline of Pfizer is actually quite solid. Uh, valuations seem decent. I, I wouldn't say that that attractive from a value, uh, a value investor perspective. But, uh, you know, kind of like similar to my first question, your first question's answer, relatively priced okay. So, you know, good to keep reading, good to keep following it. But personally, I'm staying away. Arun, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Arun Pai, Investments Team, Monks Hill Ventures. Arun, we really appreciate it. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.